You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, if you go to the National Gallery up in London, just on the edge of Trafalgar Square, there's lots of religious art. And one of the themes that's picked up uh, through the centuries that you'll see develop is uh, pictures depicting God, especially trying to depict the Trinity, which... I think if you're a painter, that's got to be a pretty tough job, isn't it? But what you'll find is consistently, um, even through the development of artwork about the Trinity, is that there are fairly clear ideas about how to depict God the Father. Usually, this is where our stereotypes, which aren't always helpful, of God with long flowing robes and a white beard and that sort of thing, um, come from. Fairly clear ideas of how to depict in painting God the Son, because we have actual descriptions in the Bible and events that happen, and we, you know, we know, of course, Jesus became a man. So that's fairly straightforward. But when it comes to pictures of the Holy Spirit, it all gets a little bit vague. Um, sometimes it's kind of gold lines, or maybe a dove, or you know, something like that. And it's it's really um, it's not clear how to depict the Holy Spirit. And I think that's that puzzle in painting is reflected actually sometimes in our lives as Christians. Sometimes in the church as a whole, when we talk about the Holy Spirit and when we try to talk to each other about what the Holy Spirit does, it can all get a little bit vague. And I think one of the cool things um, I've discovered over the years as, as a Christian is that although there's lots of different ways to talk about the Holy Spirit, often Christians from different uh, denominations, different churches, different traditions are often talking about the same thing but using different language. We have this amazing shared experience of what the Holy Spirit does, but sometimes it's quite hard to ex- explain it. Well, I think Luke really helps us out. In uh, Luke is the person who's writing Acts, of course. And in his account of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit onto the early church, he gives us some really clear ideas, um, kind of hints that are woven into the text to explain to us exactly what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. What's the ministry of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean for, for Christians? And um, some really clear signs. And that's what we're going to uh, look at today. Um, but before we look at that, it's probably worth just saying, last week we looked at the ascension, and I said the ascension is like the key in the turning and the ignition of the, all of God's works. Like everything he's done up until that point is assembling the car, and then at the ascension, as Jesus goes bodily into heaven, the key is turned in the ignition. Well, I can't really extend that to Pentecost without mixing my metaphors somewhat. But if, if, the, if the ascension is the key in the ignition, the Pentecost is the car driving, it's the roar of the engine, it's the, it, it's, it's the power actually happening. And, and what, what's happening at Pentecost, it, it's helpful for us to just pinpoint this before we get to the rest of the sermon. Jesus going up to heaven releases the, the, the power of what, everything that God has done. And Pentecost is that power flooding out of heaven. It's the Holy Spirit, the person of God, um, third person of Trinity, actually flooding into creation. As a, as a real thing, that's the that's kind of overall picture. So it's not just a symbolic thing, but something actually happens on that day uh, that gives birth to the, to the church. So happy birthday, church. <laughs> Pentecost is the, is the birthday of the church. So there's some really significant stuff going on here. And to be honest, when I was first looking at this message, I was thinking, what can I bring? There's like a thousand sermons. I'm only going to do three of them today. <laughs> kind of a joke but not really. <laughs> um, and um, there's so much we could say about it, but I really think there's, there's some stuff in the passage that kind of stands out to me. So we're going to talk about three things that the Holy Spirit does in the Christian life based on three signs that appeared at Pentecost. So we're going to talk about the Spirit's work of giving life, which we've already sp- Andy's already spoken about this morning. The rushing wind is a symbol of life. The tongues of fire over the heads of the apostles as they gathered in that upper room. 
is uh, shows us the Spirit's work of adoption, of making us know that we're sons of God. And thirdly, we're going to look at speaking in tongues and how that uh, represents, shows us the Spirit's work of bringing unity. So does that sound okay, those three things? Good, let's go to work at it. So, first thing to say, the word spirit in both Greek and Hebrew uh, is also the word for breath. Like in English, we don't say, oh, you know, there's spirit coming out of your mouth. But in Greek and Hebrew, you did. But in Hebrew, the word is ruach. Um, that means spirit or breath. In Greek, the word is pneuma, which means uh, spirit or breath. The same thing. And so wrapped up in the biblical picture of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does um, is this idea that somehow the Holy Spirit is the breath of God. And I think that's much more helpful because in English, spirit has all these kind of ooh, kind of connotations, doesn't it? You know, kind of vague and mysterious. And yes, we're talking about something, uh, spirit, something that is intangible, invisible maybe, better to say. There is something spiritual in that English sense of it. But it's much more about God's presence, his substance, somehow being communicated. And, and that's a much more helpful look, uh, way of looking at things. And in Greek and Hebrew, that sense of God's breath usually, uh, often, points to um, God's life-giving power. And that's the first thing we're, we're looking at today. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. We say that in the Creed. It's the Lord and giver of life. And it's such a wonderful picture of what he does. One of the most fundamental things we believe about the Holy Spirit is he gives life. But what does that mean? That's what we're going to try and unpack that a little bit. In Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, in chapter 37, Ezekiel has this very dramatic vision. God takes him in, uh, in, in the spirit, I guess, into a, a valley that is filled with dried human bones. It is, it's horrific when you think about it. Dead people filling a valley. And just, just thousands upon thousands of dry bones littered on top of each other. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And to cut a long story short, the answer is yes. And he, he, God speaks to Ezekiel and he says, he says this particular thing. Um, he says to Ezekiel, I want you to speak to the wind and say this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. And Ezekiel says, so I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. And they were clothed once more with flesh. So that prophecy was about Israel, but it's also a prophecy that points to the day of Pentecost. And what they're showing us is that the first work of the Spirit in bringing life is to restore life. That's really important for us to understand. You may think that's a kind of small point, but the Holy Spirit is resurrecting in this particular picture. He's bringing something back to life that was broken. So that points to us about what the Holy Spirit's work is in our lives. That what God wants to do in each one of us is to restore to us the image of God that is broken in each one of us. The Bible tells us that when God first made us, we were noble. We were wonderful. We were wise. We were good. We understood the world around us. We knew how to act, how to treat the creation, how to treat one another. We were, we lived in harmony with the things around us and we, we were strong and upright. And the picture is of wholesome humanity. That's how God created us to be. But the Bible also says that after the first sin, all those things began to crumble. And so now, after all this time, instead of being wise and strong and upright and righteous and all those things, we are instead foolish, 
That is, we misunderstand the world and we make stupid choices. Do you think that's true about you? We don't really understand what's happening around us. We make stupid choices. We are uncontrolled. We lack self-control. So we do things that we know aren't right because we can't help it. Or we do too much of stuff because we can't, because we're addicted and we can't help it. And we are weak through sin. So instead of persevering through trials, we give up on things. Instead of persevering in relationships, we, we give up on things. Instead of trying hard to get better at something, we give up on things. And so our natural faculties are all in decay because of Adam's sin. And I think that's an accurate portrait. I think most people, actually, if you, if you ask them to look really hard into their heart and they're having a good day and they're being really honest with themselves, would say, yeah, that's probably a fair description of who I am. And so the first thing that the Holy Spirit does in breathing life back into us is to fix or or the first work of that spirit is fixing what is broken in us naturally. Fixing what is broken in us naturally. He makes us wise again. He begins to help us to understand the world around us and our place in it and how to act. He begins to teach us what it means to be righteous, to, to interact, to not just to have that understanding, but to, to use it well. He makes us strong. He gives us self-control. And so that's, that's why, if you look at the fruit of the Spirit that um, Paul talks about in Galatians 5, it includes some things like peace and self-control and all those things, because that's what the Holy Spirit does. He restores our broken nature. And we have a picture of this in Revelation 22. There's a picture of um, the city of God which represents the church and a river flowing out of it and a, the tree of life growing on either side of the river. And um, John writes for us, he says, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So God is in the business of healing, restoring, fixing, putting back together. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit. And and we, we see that in our personal lives. You see that as Christians, and we should expect that in our personal lives as Christians, that God is not just in the business of giving us supernatural experiences or things that the world doesn't understand, but actually is in the business of of making us, just in a very natural sense, better people than we were without him. Restoring to us our natural faculties, making us like Adam was. Now, you know, none of us has arrived, obviously. None of us is fixed. But the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that fixing. I think that's a really important point. So God is restoring our nature. He's putting us back together. But when we say the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life, we don't just mean that he fixes us. We also mean that, he, mean that he gives us a new kind of life as well. He gives us a new kind of life as well. And one of the, um, who was it now? I forgot to write it down. You know how I love giving you funny named old people from church history. I'm pretty sure this is from Cyril of Alexandria, who's a funny old guy, but um, a, a great theologian. But he says something like, he says, just as human beings have eyes for sight and ears for hearing and a nose for smelling, so we have a soul for knowing God. But just as eyes don't work without light, and just as ears don't work without sound, and just as our smell doesn't work without something to smell, so the soul doesn't work without the Holy Spirit. I think that's really great. There's a, there's a knowledge, a knowing God, a, an extra dimension to life, outside of the natural, that is knowing God, and it fills us with something that is a little bit harder to describe and summarize than being a better person than we were without Jesus. Yes, he's in the business of restoring to us, but he's, he's, he's giving us his life. And so there's this second picture of this rushing wind, which just came to my mind as I was just 
first thinking about what to bring this morning, of, you know, in Genesis, right at the beginning of Genesis, and God creates Adam, he shakes him out of the dust of the earth, and he, he, he breathes life into his nostrils. And I've always imagined the kind of like a, <laughs> like a kind of intimate and gentle kind of little puff. But I thought, well, hang on a minute, what if it's God? What if it's more like a rushing wind that fills the whole house? What if it's like, you know, this is the picture that this passage gives us. It's not just about Ezekiel and restoration. God is filling a new man. The church as a, as a, as a new humanity is being filled with a new kind of life. You know, Jesus uh, gives us that, he, he gives us that parable about wineskins, you know, an old wineskin can't contain new wine, it will burst. It's the same thing is happening here. The Holy Spirit has to restore us through, and he brings to us the cleansing power of Jesus Christ, of course. He restores us, and he makes us new wineskins, and then he pours new wine into us. Those two things are happening. And what that new life is, is it's, it's God's divine life. You know, we said last week, through because Jesus is now fully human and is in heaven, he joins our humanity with God's godly life. And so there's this new thing that's happening in us. It's God's divine life shining through, enriching and transforming and bringing his wonderful, transcendent beauty into every part of our existence. So last week I said, you know, the, the, the resurrection life, this life, this divine life that God gives us is, is something, it doesn't undo our natural order, it, it fulfills it. Like, as if our, our nature without God is like a circle, or our nature without the Holy Spirit living in us is like a, a perfect circle. That's the circle he's fixed, if you like. But our new life to come is like a, a sphere. It's still a circle, but it's so much more. And it, it's, a, it's a kind of difficult thing to get across. You know, a sphere is still a circle. So when the Holy Spirit comes, you're still a human being, and you still have all these natural things about you. But now there's this other dimension to your life that it, it kind of makes even more sense of being a circle. And there's other things kind of shining through it. It's, it's mysterious, but it, it, it does make sense. And so what happens when, you, when the work of the Holy Spirit isn't just to fix us, but it's also to give us things like a mystical knowledge of God. That is like some kind of direct experience, like, like we hear sound, like we smell smell, so we know God with our soul. And it's something that it's hard to describe, but it's a real thing, isn't it? You've experienced it? You know, when we talk about having a relationship with God, that's, I think that's what we're talking about. The sense of personal connection with God that Sometimes continuously, sometimes, you know, um, there are breaks, but it's a definite real thing, this communion with God. It brings a supernatural peace, a peace that passes understanding. So not just a peace because, oh, God has fixed me, but a peace that transcends that. That even though I'm not fixed, even though my circumstances of life are terrible, there's this peace that passes understanding. There's a, there's a joy that is more than, now. Oh, life's going well for me. A joy that's inexpressible that comes from from heaven and fills our life and says, wow, there's something so amazing, so good in the world. Like, you know, it's sunshine in our hearts and it's a love and assurance of God's goodwill to us, a desire to, to please him and to bless other people and just a, a fullness of, of being valued and wanting to share that, that valuing of others with the people around us. This mystical knowledge of God. He, um, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts of the Spirit. He gives us supernatural powers. You know, we're not crazy. It actually happens. God gives gifts of healing. He gives the gift of tongues, gifts of prophecy, gifts of working miracles. Maybe not quite in the density and frequency that we would like, but it does happen, doesn't it? 
It's it, this is this, this free dimensional life emerging in us. He, he brings his uh, transcendence into creation. So he brings that life in us. The Holy Spirit brings beauty from heaven. You ever thought about that? Beauty from heaven and goodness from heaven and truth from heaven that wouldn't be here without the Holy Spirit being poured out into the church. You know, I think some of the the music that Christians have written over the years, some, you know, oh, Bach or something, some of the architecture, some of the cities that have been planned. Is it okay to think about this? It's not too high for Lucy and I hope. Some, some of the stuff that God does on this big, and some of the stuff he's doing for you, beauty and goodness, some of the things that happen in your families, that wouldn't happen without the Holy Spirit's presence in you. Not just because he's restoring you and fixing you, but because heaven itself is shining through you, like sunshine shining through a diamond. You know, that's, that's what's happening. So he, he brings this, and all these things are a foretaste, like a, phys, a physically present foretaste of the life of heaven that is to come. So all those good things, that mystical knowledge, those gifts of the Spirit, this transcendent beauty, truth, and goodness, is a, is a, is a something we can, is an assurance to us that the heaven we hope for is a real place because we've begun to experience it now. The Bible says it's a seal, a down payment, uh, a deposit of what's to come. So Cyril of Alexandria, you remember him? He says this. He, he, he talks about... Um, Prophet speaks to, to Saul and says, um, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, you're going to be a new man. You're going to be utterly transformed. When the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we are new people. And he says this, does this not show that the Spirit changes those in whom he comes to dwell and alters the whole pattern of their lives? With the Spirit within them, it's quite natural for people who've been absorbed by the things of this world to become entirely otherworldly in outlook. For cowards to become men of great courage, for example. There could be no doubt this is what happened to the disciples. Just look at that in Peter. Look at the new life bursting out of him as he stands up and tells everyone to shush. Be quiet for a second and listen carefully to what I'm about to say and delivers the best evangelistic sermon of all time. I think that's a great truth. So the work of the Spirit brings life. This is the substance of our salvation. This is what empowers these disciples to go and tell people because they experience the restoring life-giving of the Holy Spirit and experience the heavenly life-giving of the Holy Spirit. And they've got something to tell people about. You know, our gospel is not just a message. It is a substantial thing. We were talking uh, in the elders meeting with the eldership candidates about, you know, what, what is the... The thing, the good news that we're telling people about, not just the message, we know what the message is, but how do we, how do we explain to people what is it, what's the advantage of being a Christian in ways that they can understand? And you know, I think here we have a really clear explanation of the advantage of being a Christian. God fixes us in, in, in a natural sense. Now, I can say to someone who's not a Christian, I can say, God can fix you. I, I, I can, you know, if it's someone I don't know, I'm not going to be judging their lives. But I can say, ask yourself this question. Is your life self-controlled? Do you understand the world? Are you wise? Are you good? Do you do the things you want to do or do you do things that you don't want to do? You can ask these questions about their natural behavior. And there's something there that people can understand. And I can say, I know that in my life, God has brought transformation in a natural sense. He has restored Adam in me 
Now, I'm not saying that I'm better than you, but I'm definitely better than me, how I was. Plenty of people who, don't, who aren't Christians are naturally better than me. But I was a mess without Jesus. And I definitely would have been an even much bigger mess than I am without Jesus, just in the natural. And I'm talking about spiritual gifts. That's a powerful message to bring to people. God has brought order to my life. He's given me wisdom and courage and self-control. That's attractive to people. It makes sense of the gospel to people. And then on top of that, you can have a relationship with God. You can experience the power of heaven flowing through you. You can see lives utterly transformed because of miracles happening. Isn't that an amazing message to share? You can experience a beauty that you didn't even ex- you didn't know it happened. You know, not just in cathedrals and orchestras, but in your in your family. You can see beautiful things happening, heaven breaking in and bringing a, a kind of life that you weren't even sure existed into being into the lives of your children or your wife or your husband. This is good, isn't it? To be able to say that. So, is for our kind of first application? We have a, a life-giving Lord in the Holy Spirit. And that's a wonderful message. Secondly then, tongues of fire. So um, Luke recounts for us that as the Holy Spirit's poured out, something like tongues of fire appear over the heads of the, of the disciples as they're gathered. Goes from one to the other. So just picture it in your mind a second, just so we've got it clear. Just imagine 120 people sitting in a room and gradually, not, not to shock, just a bit of understanding what's happening here. Something that looks just like fire appears over each one of their heads. Got the picture? Okay. That's a sign of our adoption as sons. A sign of our adoption as sons. I'm going to take you on a little logical journey here, and we're going to come back to that, but just to explain what that means. So in Luke's account, there are many, many parallels between how he records the day of Pentecost and what happened to the Jewish people when they met God at Mount Sinai. So there are parallels in in the telling of these two stories. And that's deliberate. Luke is highlighting those parallels for us to make a point. Mount Sinai was the place where God gave his law to the Jewish people, the Ten Commandments. Moses went up the mountain, and after a little while, he came down again with the law, and he presented it to the people. And that's what's happening here. Jesus has gone up to heaven, and after a little while, what comes down again is the law of God is being poured out. Now, I'm talking about law now, not adoption, but we're going to come back to adoption. And there are parallels here. So uh, when the Jews were at Mount Sinai, there was... A storm was on top, of the, on top of the mountain. There was a rushing wind, a gale blowing. There was fire on this mountain. And there was a voice booming. It was so loud and so terrifying that they said, please don't let him speak to us again. After Moses came down and gave the law, uh, the people of God in the first instance were not in a good way. Many of them rebelled against God's Dictates and 3,000 people died because of God's judgment in that specific situation. So there's some things that happen at Sinai, and that's what's happening here at Pentecost. Once again, the disciples are on a mountain, Mount Zion this time, or Mount Sinai. Uh, Jesus has gone up to heaven. They're waiting for something to, be, to come down again. But this time, there's a rushing wind that fills the room. The fire isn't on the mountain, but on each one of their heads. And a voice booms, but it's the voice of many people speaking. And instead of 
people covering their ears, they're like, what is this? Let's come and have a look. They're going to be interested. They're intrigued about what's happening. And instead of 3,000 people dying, Paul tell, uh, Luke tells us at the end of this chapter that 3,000 people were saved. Now, I don't know if it's 3,000 people precisely, but I'm pretty sure the reason Luke rounded that number was to make this point that I'm making now. But Pentecost and Sinai are parallels. What happens at Sinai was that despite God's presence, judgment was brought. God's presence was so hard for them to bear that they couldn't live with him. They could, all the people of Israel basically related to God like slaves. They were scared of him. Yes, they wanted to do what he said, but they were absolutely scared of him. But at Pentecost, what happens is that we're made sons. Instead of being scared of God, overawed by him, alienated from him, destroyed by his presence and his holiness, we're brought in intimately into fellowship with him. So the writer to Hebrews makes exactly this point in chapter 12 of Hebrews. He says to us Christians, he says, you have not come to a mountain that that can uh, be touched and it's burning with fire to darkness and gloom and storm. You've not come to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged no further word to be spoken to them because they couldn't bear what was commanded. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, he's making exactly the same power. So here's, here's the question, and this is, which going to bring us down to our final point. Why does the wind come like a rushing wind, but the fire doesn't come like a rushing fire? It does, there's not a, like a, a furnace that blasts through. I mean, it wasn't a literal fire, so it wouldn't have got burnt, so it's not that. <laughs> Why is it not just a great big flame that rushes through? Why divided tongues upon each head? It's to show us that in this encounter with God's holiness, God deals with us, not en masse, not in a way that saves some and alienates others, but he deals with us graciously, individually, because he wants to make us his children, not his slaves. He wants to make us his children, not his slaves. We're each of us a temple of the Holy Spirit. We each of us have God's love poured into our hearts, but God does it for us in different ways. What does it mean? What's the difference between a son and a slave? God wants us not just to obey him because he's God, but he wants to write the law on our hearts. What that means is he wants us to obey him because we love the same things that he loves. He wants us to obey him not because he's written down just in the Bible a command and we go, it's in the Bible, we have to obey it. Because we understand why he wrote it down. And filled with that understanding, we want to do the things that he says and we don't want to do the things that he says we shouldn't do. He wants to fill us with that knowledge and he wants to fill us with the joy of that obedience. If you know something is right and you're able to do it, that's a really joyful thing to be able to do, isn't it? If you know God's law and, you're, and you understand it and you're able to do it with all your heart, mind and soul and strength, that's what a son is. That's what a child of God is compared to a slave. So God wants to make us into his children. That's what the divided tongues represent. Yes, they represent 
a sacrifice on an altar. Yes, they represent God's love being poured into us. Yes, the flames represent holiness. All these images of, of flame that we could draw upon. But ultimately, the division of those flames represents God's gracious application of those things to us. That he deals with us individually, makes us into children of God. And maybe a little abstract, but we can make it practical in really important ways. What that means is that the work of the Holy Spirit is unique in each person. God deals with us differently, each different person, because each of us has different problems. We're saying the Holy Spirit brings, restores our life, but each of us is broken in different ways, aren't we? <laughs> we all have different problems. Now, I talked to someone, maybe someone here, I can't remember now. We're talking about how the NHS is becoming a bit like a conveyor belt. You get diagnosed with a problem and like it's, everyone sees the same doctor, everyone has the same treatment, and and actually there's, there's not as much care about the individual as there used to be. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just a conversation I recently had. But the Holy Spirit is like a, a perfect physician. He has all the time in the world and all the resources in the world to treat us individually, to, to ask us what are the symptoms, what, what's the, here's your diagnosis, here's your treatment plan. Perfectly and with perfect wisdom planned just for you. This is how God is going to, how I'm going to fix you. And in terms of that life, that new life that's coming, each of us has a different calling, different gifts, different ways that God's heavenly life is going to be displayed in us. And so he leads us into that, uh, into that newness of life, each of us differently. So he's like a really expensive private doctor and a really expensive personal trainer, basically. <laughs> Fixes us perfectly and trains us perfectly, depending on who we are. So what's the application of that? Well, that sense that we experience the work of the Spirit in different ways should key us up to expect the Holy Spirit to work in our brothers and sisters in Christ in different ways. A simple point, really. But often we, we kind of expect the Holy Spirit just to work in a uniform way. The way I've experienced God, uh, the Holy Spirit working, is going to be exactly the same as the way you experience the Holy Spirit working. I remember Paul uh, Astley, my predecessor here, telling a funny story. He went to... Um, like a prayer meeting somewhere in Wimbledon, I think it was. And uh, they were, everyone was praying, and the Holy Spirit was moving in power. And uh, as, a, as the Holy Spirit moved, one by one, every single person in that room, they were all ministers of churches, fell over on the floor. Until the whole room was on the floor, except for Paul. And I remember him saying, you know, I, I was like, is there something wrong with me? You know, is there some sin like in my life that like God doesn't like me? Well, I mean, there may have been. I don't think so. <laughs> and, and we have this expectation that God has done exactly the same thing, and he deals with us differently. He deals with us differently. So what do we conclude from that? Well, it's really important for us that we mustn't judge people, other Christians especially, as unspiritual, because God doesn't work in a specific way through them. Yes, we should expect the, the life of God, the new life of God to be shining through, but we must be looking for it in places that we perhaps don't expect. Not, stere not charismatic stereotypes, Pentecostal stereotypes, or even not you know, cessationist stereotypes about what the work of the Spirit looks like. We need to be open to how he's working in different people. You know, I remember hearing a guy um, say, uh, I, I was at a conference, I overheard this conversation, there was a guy and he was talking about how he was a prophet. And he said God had told him 
to do an Abraham and to move from wherever he was to Eastbourne and seek out God's new plan for him. And I'm just thinking that was really funny because it was like, had this kind of dramatic kind of, God's told me to go to Eastbourne, you know. It's like, <laughs> yeah, Abraham-ish, you know. It's like, <laughs> and, um, and then he said something that it really made me, it hurt, it hurt in a way and made me judge him, frankly. And he said, but of course, unspiritual Christians wouldn't understand that. And inside I was like, you're an unspiritual Christian. <laughs> and then as, as I felt that, the Holy Spirit pointed at me and did exactly the same thing as said, yeah, Jeff, you're an unspiritual Christian <laughs> for being so judgmental in this guy. So it's kind of a circular thing. But anyway, don't judge. <laughs> you know, in my own life, especially since I've been pastor here, God has consistently, wonderfully surprised me with how his Holy Spirit is at work in people's lives. Usually in ways that I've not expected before, not encountered before. Beautiful, wonderful, diverse ways. In all of you guys, and people who aren't here. You know, and it's, it's just been a pleasure to have my stereotypes shattered by real experience. It's, it's just amazing. God's vision for the work, God's vision of the work of the Spirit is just so much better than mine. What the Holy Spirit actually does is so much better than what I thought he did. So we mustn't write people off as unspiritual. We must be open to this diversity of experience. Now, I read a, a prayer this week, and um, the wording of this prayer was, um, was something like, Lord Jesus, help me to treat my weaker brothers with reverence. I just thought that was a beautiful prayer. Of course, we may be talking about people who are weaker than us. But how about this as a, as a prayer? Help me to treat my brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't like me with reverence. Not just acceptance, not just tolerance, but you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. I may not immediately see what that means, but if you're a Christian, you're under grace, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Help me to come to that person with reverence, expecting to find the life of God there. I think that's a wonderful prayer. But the Bible is also very clear that our experience of the Spirit in our life is tied to our desire for him. How much a person has that supernatural life shining through them is tied to how much they desire to have the Holy Spirit. So Jesus gives wonderful teaching about prayer in Luke 11. He talks about perseverance. He talks about asking and seeking and knocking. You know, he says, he says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then he concludes with this, what, this kind of mind-boggling statement. I just love it so much. It's so easy and yet so hard to do. He just says, if you guys, though you're human and broken and evil, basically, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit? to those who ask him. What are we asking for? What are we asking for? We're asking to be like Jesus. <laughs> There's nothing not to ask for. Lord God, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Give me more of him so that I can see more of your love for me and I can respond with all of me in love to you. And I can be so full of your presence that I can love the people around me like Jesus loved that should be our waking prayer, shouldn't it? The thing we say when we wake up in the morning, and the thing we say through the day, and the last thing we say tonight, make us more like Jesus. Because that is what the Holy Spirit is doing. 
And if, if you're a Christian, you should be hungry to be like Jesus, which means you should be hungry for more of the Holy Spirit. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn that expressed that desire. That reads, A vow who came from above, the fire celestial to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. There let it for thy glory burn with inextinguishable blaze, and trembling to its source return in humble prayer and fervent praise. Jesus, confirm my heart's desire to work and speak and think for thee. Still let me guard the holy fire and still stir up the gift in me. Ready for all thy perfect will, my acts of faith and love repeat, till death thy endless mercy seal and make the sacrifice complete. Whether you like singing Charles Wesley or not, that should be your prayer for more of the Holy Spirit. So rushing wind, tongues of fire, and then thirdly speaking in tongues. There's a famous example of uh, studies of humour across cultures. Uh, there's a guy, a Chinese comedian. He was, like, when I say Chinese, I don't just mean ethnically Chinese. He was from China. He lived in China his whole life. And he did a, kind of his first stand-up set on uh, David Letterman's show in the US. And it's a really interesting example of when cultures collide. And basically, it's interesting because as he started his comedy sketch, it was live-streamed to China. And Chinese people were able to comment on his humour and so this guy who is, he looks Chinese, he's lived in China, he speaks with a thick Chinese accent, comes on and his first joke to the David Letterman show audience is, so, I'm Irish. <laughs> and um, at that point, like, the audience just bursts into laughter because, I mean, he's obviously, obviously not. But on the live feed, as the Chinese people are watching and typing this, they're like, what kind of joke is this? Why are all the Americans laughing at this? Like, is it, is it funny to be Irish? Like, you know, like, and there's this kind of basic mismatch. You know, there are, so, there are divisions culturally, aren't there, that we experience all the time. And those divisions, they're very superficial in some senses, and actually to some extent they can be overcome. But they point to the fact that actually as human beings, we are divided from one another at a really fundamental level, not just across countries, across, across countries, but also individually. There, there exists between us a division that actually is, when we begin to analyse it, is really, really scary and really, really remarkable. Titus, um, Paul writes to Titus, and Titus 3, he says this, he's, about our lives without Jesus. He says, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. You think that's a drastic ex- uh, description of what human beings are like? You think that's true? I know my heart, that is true. Now, when I'm in malice and envy and hating and hating, I'm not wandering around the streets, like shouting at people and going, oh, that's how stupid, or anything like that. You know? it's, it doesn't manifest itself in this stereotypical hatred. But in my heart, I'm thinking a lot of those things a lot of the time. Thinking about how stupid or worthless people are. No, those, those aren't the words in my head, but that's my attitude. Wishing that, you know, I had something and someone else didn't. You know, those things are going on in my heart all the time. And what that manifests itself in is a downright broken society, broken families and broken relationships all throughout the world. And we, we are nothing like the society God made us to be. You know, I think, I think the closest place we actually see this manifested fully is either the comments section of an internet page where there's like no accountability. You see this guy, vile, poor, for, blah, all over 
internet page, it's just awful. Or when we're driving, frankly. <laughs> and, and what's manifested is the dark secrets of our heart, just how much we hate people. One of the signs of that division that God kind of enforces to basically make sure that it doesn't do much worse damage than it's already done is the fact that our languages are confused, that there are so many different languages in the world. And the Bible tells us that at some point in history, God, God scattered the, the people of the world and confused their languages so they couldn't work together and do great harm, basically. So there's this sign of division, which is the confusion of the language in the world. What Luke shows us carefully through his account is that through the miracle of tongues, which is where the disciples were speaking in many different languages and other people were there were able to hear, that the Spirit, one of the fundamental aspects of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to reverse this division, to heal this hatred, and to bring unity. So he tells us, Luke tells us in this passage, he's really careful, Jews from every nation under heaven, and he lists them, like examples of who was there. Um, he, he lists them, and he lists them in such a way as to highlight the fact that they all come from three specific areas uh, that um, are descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who were the three sons of Noah. And so he, he's trying to show us, this is the whole of humanity is represented here. So the most of them are from Semitic areas, from Shem, but Egypt and Libya were considered uh, descendants of Ham, and Cretans and Romans, sounds funny as descendants of Ham, but anyway, and Cretans and Romans were considered to be descendants of Japheth. So he's saying the whole world is represented here. And, and the, one of the great works of the Holy Spirit is to overcome that sinful division. We could talk about tongues, we could talk about the gift of tongues, what it means and how it works, but that's not the fundamental point about tongues. The point of the gift of tongues, especially at Pentecost, is to show that the work of the Holy Spirit is to bring unity. To overcome the sinful divisions that exist between humans because of sin. And, and this unity that God is doing through the work of the Holy Spirit under the Lordship of Christ is not just making everybody the same, like we're all you know, soldiers in... Uh, a North Korean army marching in step, goose-stepping, but to bring everything in creation, every human being, everything that God has made, everything in heaven into a wonderful harmony where every single thing gives glory to God. So Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that God's great plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth and under Christ. So that's the big picture of what God is doing right now. And that's the big picture of the Holy Spirit's work. To bring a life that makes everything fully itself and enables that, that thing to be in harmony with every other thing that exists. And for all those things to work together to give glory to God and to fill our lives with his life. And that's his work in the church. is to bring, in the first instance, the first place in creation that God does that is in his church. For a foretaste of that, God bringing life to us that makes us fully alive. But not just on our own, but brings us into harmony with everyone else. So as a whole, we're even more beautiful than the sum of our parts. Even more glorifying to God. And underpinning that, the work in the church is the Holy Spirit's work in us individually. So each one of us, he's overcoming this deep hatred and division and instinct to isolate ourselves from others and push away from others. And instead to embrace them and to draw close. And so we see Paul writes to the Galatians, Galatians 5, he talks about the work of the Spirit and the, uh, the works of the flesh and the gifts of the Spirit. 
And if you look at that, what you'll see is the works of the flesh which are opposed to the spirit. All things that divide. Sexual immorality, which is the abuse and misuse of others' bodies, divides. Hatred is division by nature. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. You see, it's all divide, divide, divide. The things that oppose the Spirit are all about division. But you look at the gifts of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all things that draw together. The fundamental work of the Holy Spirit, one of his fundamental aspects, is to create unity. What's the application? You know, I remember hearing a, a guy, a godly guy, God used him mightily, but he was preaching about the Holy Spirit, and he said something like this. He said, one of the things you have to get used to in life is when the Holy Spirit moves in power, he'll bring division. It's not true. The Holy Spirit can bring to light sin that needs to be dealt with, but the Holy Spirit will not bring division between Christians. Not bring division between Christians. You know, I've heard church leaders talk with a kind of stoical pride about how the Holy Spirit came into the church and in the end, the church was just like an old wineskin. It was going to burst. We had to leave and start our own church. And since then, God has done amazing things. That's not the work of the Spirit, folks. That's the opposite. That's giving up on the work of the Spirit. Division comes from the devil. That's the application. Unity comes from the spirit. That's why um, Paul says to the Ephesians, uh, he says, be completely humble and gentle. It's Ephesians 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then listen to this. He emphasizes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So... Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. See what he's saying? This oneness is so important to God. Now, where does that have bearing on our lives on a day-to-day basis? Where does that truth hit home? Well, I think it's just in recognizing that we have this instinct inside us that wants to divide. And we have to become attuned to it and aware of it. You know, God has made me so much more aware of this in my own life. I remember times in my life when I was just so harsh and judgmental about other Christians, especially about like their theology. I remember sitting in meetings and just thinking, what is this person doing? Why are they leading like this? I'm confessing to you. It's a real thing. Why are they leading? What are they saying? Why, why this is this so boring or so stupid? You know, and it filled with an anger. I was filled with this works of the flesh. I was thinking, if I was in charge, I would do this and I would do that. And you see, and it's, it was so obvious that I'm embarrassed to admit it. It's so obvious, like, how stupid could I be? And I thought I was being spiritual. To, to judge other people and to judge their gifts as unspiritual. Like, I, was, I did exactly the same thing as that, you know, Abrahamish guy. We have to become attuned to that instinct in us. And, and we have to reject it. Push it away and act with, with a hope and a confidence that God is able to bring this beautiful, harmonious unity between us and other Christians. On a personal level, we have to watch out for anything that writes off other Christians as beyond hope. Now, I read an article in a magazine once, and it was like, um, it was entitled Christian Vampires. 
And it, it, the person began, I call people who deplete our joy and peace Christian vampires. And the article is all about how to avoid other Christians who deplete your joy and peace. But we do it, don't we? We, we laugh at the article, well, that's disgusting, but we do it. We avoid people who deplete our joy and peace, or we avoid people that offend us, or we just don't get on with, or we write people off in our imaginations and say, you know, that's worldly thinking. There has to be prudence in our relationships, there has to be you know, wisdom about how we engage with one another, but we can't write each other off. We can't write people off or objectify them. Anything that makes someone an obstacle to be worked around or to be managed, that's not the Holy Spirit working. Anything that makes a person a problem to be tolerated, that's not the Holy Spirit working. Anything that says, you know, we're called to love one another, not like each other, that's not the Holy Spirit. We're called to love and like, celebrate, delight in one another. Anything that makes us give up on other Christians, write them off as useless, as time wasters, or as vampires, or unspiritual, not worth loving, or beyond hope, anything like that is of the enemy. What comes from the Holy Spirit is this amazing, unshakable hope that God is able to bring an incredible unity between us, where we actually love one another. Maybe not in this life, but a foretaste of it in this life. So let me ask you, is there any Christian brother or sister that you've written off in your heart? As being unable to love them or be loved by them. Any group of people, any, uh, any family or individual. Is it, you know, it even happens in marriages. There gets to a point when there's a breakdown so, so hard that you know, a husband just in his heart he writes off his wife. And that's the start of you know, that horrible realisation of division, which is divorce. Or a wife writes off her husband as unreachable. You know, maybe there's someone in your life who's awkward and makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe they've hurt you. Maybe there's some reason why you avoid that person. But here's the truth. One day you will both stand before Jesus Christ. And you'll both be full of his Holy Spirit. And those things that divide, these great chasms, valleys of division, that like borders between countries, unpassable, will be filled with the water of the life of the Holy Spirit. And will be sources of joy. And will give glory to God. And, 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 and bless other people. You know, each encounter in heaven with another person will be like Adam seeing Eve for the first time. Not, not sexual, of course, but not mere friendship either. There'll be something, when we meet other people in heaven, there'll be something that earthly love can only hint at. We'll be filled with an astonishment by this, their similarity to us and their difference to us, their sheer otherness. Filled with the Holy Spirit and his unifying power. We'll be filled with a wonder and a joy. And like Adam, when he sees these, our heart will say, at last, I've met you. This is wonderful. I've never met anyone like you. That's what our reaction will be to one another in heaven. And we will see with godly clarity how each person reveals to us something of God's love. Something new. We will see how... We were made to bless them in some particular way. And some new thing will come into being through that love that will give more glory to God and even greater joy. This is what God commands us to do now, to begin to behold one another in this way. It is possible because of the unifying work of the Holy Spirit. So may God grant us an unquenchable desire for the Holy Spirit, for his life, 
for sonship and for unity. And may we be continually satisfied with him.